Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds from Derbyshire and the Peak District. Cromford, 1979. The walk from Worksworth to Cromford, from school to home, would normally take about 40 minutes if she was quick. The heavy-footed morning walk to school wasn't helped by being a climb of about 50 metres over a two-mile journey. But, at least on this walk home, she had gravity on her side. Easter was relatively late this year and with the blizzards and heavy snowfalls of the famously brutal winter of 1979 just past, the forecast was for a clear and relatively warm Easter weekend. With the slope in her favour and a long break from school ahead, 15-year-old Lorraine Underwood was anticipating a fine few weeks. There'd be the fair in Bakewell to consider, She'd still have to do a paper round too, but escaping the family and the house she shared with her mum and two brothers and two sisters would be a priority. What she actually did, or where she went, was of little importance though, compared to who she'd spend it with. Peter Thompson was an apprentice welder. Three years Lorraine senior, his motorbike had been the first thing that she'd noticed about him. He was tall and handsome, and when she turned 16 in September, they were planning to get engaged. Almost as much as Lorraine longed for it, both families prayed that this would be the first step on a journey that would lead to marriage, children, and a long, happy life together. The walk home took Lorraine to her right, past Black Rock Point, a tall outcrop of deep, grey, ash-over gritstone. Gritstone is hard and grained, just the qualities that made the iconic circular Derbyshire grinding stone famous and the symbol for the Peak District National Park. On her left, rising gradually, ran fields and over and down to Dean Quarry. Parts abandoned, parts still in use. Past that was Mountain Cottage, where the writer and poet D.H. Lawrence had lived for several years. A left turn, just before reaching the village mill pond, but past St Mark's Cemetery, led to Hawthorne Drive and its neat 50s pebble-clad terraced houses and home. As with all social housing of the day, They were a good, generous size. Built to house the families that worked in the quarry or slightly further afield in the coal mines. Local farm workers typically lived in cottages tithed to the estates that they laboured on. But here, people lived independently of their employer in state-supported homes. Life was freer and nobody felt freer or more hopeful for the future than 15-year-old Lorraine Underwood. It was gone midnight, early in the morning of Easter Monday, and Margaret Underwood, Lorraine's mum, or Mama as she called her, was worried. She'd been worried for the past few hours, but having set a series of mental deadlines, each of which was missed and then reset, it was late and Lorraine still hadn't come home. She'd left the house just after 1.30 to meet with Peter and Margaret had watched them walk in the direction of the village as she tended to the garden hedge. Nobody had heard from or seen either of them since. On bank holiday weekends, 
the neighbouring Matlock Bath was jam-packed with motorcyclists from Manchester, South Yorkshire and beyond. They'd been planning to visit there, but why hadn't they returned? It was unlike the pair not to have called Margaret and let her know that they'd be late. Peter's parents, Morris and Vera, with whom he lived a 25-minute drive east in Selston, hadn't heard anything either and were equally concerned. Sat by the phone, the usual carousel of potential incidents passed through Margaret's mind. The roads around Cromford, outside of the main A6 to Matlock, are notoriously dangerous. Narrow and winding, rising and falling to match the topography of the hillsides. Had they been involved in an accident? They had discussed walking up through the nearby heathlands and crags, With so many abandoned mines and quarries, could they have fallen and were trapped? A call to the police, just after midnight, didn't provide any immediate relief. A teenage couple that hadn't returned home yet on a bank holiday weekend wasn't exactly likely to raise a hue and cry. But as morning came, and with still no sign, both families, friends and police began to feel concerned. Search parties were formed, with a mixture of officers and volunteers scouring the rough and treacherous hillsides and dales. Mountain rescue teams began searching the mine shafts, quarries and crag sides, with the main belief among the police that Lorraine and Peter had befallen an accident while out walking and were lay injured and awaiting rescue. Both Derbyshire police and the families appealed through the media for information. The pair were a loving couple, with no signs of conflict between them. Witnesses came forward with sightings in Matlock Bath. During the late afternoon, the pair were seen walking hand in hand, laughing, relaxed. But, from 4.30 onwards on Easter Sunday, nothing. And that was as far as the investigation advanced, until the 24th of April, nearly two weeks since their disappearance. The police incident room in Matlock received a phone call. A phone call from Peter. He insisted that they were both well, had decided to spend some time away together and that they'd return home soon. The call prompted mixed emotions amongst the families. While it's generally accepted that no news is good news, it was a relief that they'd been in touch and they were both safe and well. But nobody had spoken to Lorraine. Was Lorraine alright? And why had they chose to call the police and not the family? A further call a few days later offered no more explanation or certainty. Again from Peter and to the police. They were both safe, he repeated, and would be back soon. Detective Superintendent Peter Bayliss, who was leading the search for the pair, had had misgivings about the veracity of the calls from Peter. Both families were hugely supportive of the relationship. There was no need to elope, as there was nothing to run from. Of more concern, though, was why had Lorraine not been heard from at all? Why was it that Peter was doing all the talking? Whatever Margaret Underwood hoped for, whatever Morris and Vera prayed for, what was found on the hilltop overlooking Lorraine's home was as far from it as they dared to imagine. On the 29th of April, the Derbyshire Mountain Rescue Team were searching the thick and coarse heathland around the village, as they had done every day for the past fortnight. Circling back on themselves towards Cromford, they reached Borlie Quarry. In a shallow hollow, covered in limestone rocks and bracken, they discovered the body of Lorraine. Partially clothed, 
her jeans and underwear pulled down to her ankles. She had several deep wounds to her head. Beyond that, there were no other physical injuries to her young body. Though no immediate indications of sexual activity were found, the state of undress in which she was discovered suggested a sexual motive behind what had occurred. That evening, a short statement was released to the press, and by the morning, the discovery of Lorraine's body was front-page news across the country. At Matlock Police Station, an incident room, as well as a press briefing room, had been established. Under the leadership of Superintendent Peter Bayliss, a team of officers drew together what could be established from the discovery of Lorraine's body, and may be inferred from the absence of Peter. The press conference was held on the morning of the 30th, and with all local and national media present, there'd be questions. Bayliss opened by explaining the circumstances in which Lorraine had been found and the current focus of the investigation. The investigation is keeping an open mind as to who's responsible for Lorraine's murder. No, no, there's no further contact from Peter and police had urged him, please, to get back in touch. The picture of the couple painted by those who knew him didn't suggest and doesn't suggest that Peter was a suspect, but nothing can be taken for granted. He could be wounded and is yet undiscovered. He could be alive and well and out of the area. It is entirely possible that a third party is involved. Again, nothing's being ruled out. The possibility that Lorraine had been the victim of the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, sat heavy with both the press and the investigation. Just ten days before the disappearance of the couple, Josephine Whittaker, a 19-year-old building society clerk from Halifax, had become the seventh victim of Sutcliffe, the second in a month after a hiatus of almost a year. With Halifax, just ten miles north of Cromford, could the Ripper have journeyed south into Derbyshire? If so, what fate might have befallen Peter Thompson? The same thought wasn't lost on the investigating officers, but after liaising with South Yorkshire Police, it was believed unlikely. Though Lorraine had died from blows to the head, there were no other obvious wounds to her body. There were no obvious signs of sexual assault either, despite the state of undress in which she was found. Lorraine's body had also been hidden, almost buried, whereas Sutcliffe's victims were left in locations where they would be found. That, and the escalation required when you consider the presence of Peter, ruled out such a connection. But where was Peter? Superintendent Bayliss explained that inquiries were underway to trace anyone who'd been near or around Ball Eye Quarry on the Easter Sunday. Special focus was given to troglodytes, or trogs as the police described them. Troglodytes were a cult phenomena of the late 50s, 60s and 70s. A throwback to the historic communities that lived in caves, in the late 50s, a new group established themselves around Cumberland Coven, in Cromford. The moral panic of the day centred on alleged black magic, satanic rituals and a liberal attitude to sex and drugs. The reality, though, was somewhat different. Whole families lived as part of the community with makers, musicians and artists forming the majority, using the caves as a base from which to work across the markets and venues around the county. D. 
Despite Cumberland Cavern being located on the other side of the village, the fact that such an alternative community existed at all was enough to see suspicion directed at them, and follow-up pieces appeared across the press, exploring the possible link between their alternative lifestyles and all kinds of nefarious activity. The main focus of the reporting, and rightly so, was on the tragedy of Lorraine's murder, the brutality of her ordeal, and the whereabouts of Peter Thompson. Alongside the somewhat ludicrous suggestion that a community of Satan-worshipping cave-dwellers had a hand in the murder of Lorraine Underwood, several more plausible lines of inquiry were explored. The post-mortem indicated that Lorraine had died some weeks before her discovery, in all likelihood the afternoon her and Peter had been reported missing. Officers stepped up the search for witnesses, then two stood out. Both women, each individual reported, seen a man running from the direction of Borlai Quarry along the road to Worksworth. The timing of these sightings tallied and placed the individual or two individuals in or around the area where Lorraine's body was found at around 5pm on the Easter Sunday. Though descriptions of the man's physicality were similar, 50s, slim, under six foot with thin balding hair, they were different in the significant ways. One described the man as wearing a distinctive tartan jacket, the other an anonymous green overcoat. Potentially simple misrememberings of the same person for sure, but the wearer of the anonymous green coat, it was said, had been carrying a shotgun over his arm. Cromford, Matlock, Worksworth, the whole of the Peak District, in fact, is rural. Gun ownership for sport or employment wasn't and isn't unusual. There'd been a suggestion by the pathologist that the wound to Lorraine's head might have been caused by the butt of a rifle or a shotgun. Therefore, the unknown runner or runners were taken particularly seriously by the police. Sketches of both men were commissioned individually, but the similarity in what was produced was striking. Released in the media as a composite, a thin pencil sketch of a narrow-faced, nervous-looking man was circulated to local and national newspapers, and a long, time-consuming series of visits to all registered gun owners in the county was undertaken. The list of licensed gun owners ran to over a thousand in Derbyshire alone, with a further 500 unlicensed guns believed to be in circulation. In response, Superintendent Bayliss issued an amnesty for all illegal weapons. Families or individuals were encouraged to hand in any unregistered weapons without fear of further action. All that was required of them was to provide an alibi for their movements over that Easter weekend in order to eliminate them from the police inquiry. Publicly, Superintendent Bayliss continued to refer to Peter as a missing person or a potential second victim. There was great suspicion that the calls received by the inquiry team purporting to be from Peter were actually genuine. Regardless whether they were or they weren't, some detectives were of the belief that Peter should be treated as a potential suspect. That the cause had been an attempt to throw police off the scent while he got as far away from Derbyshire as possible. It wasn't an implausible theory. It had merit. It would, however, be found false when, two days after the discovery of Lorraine's body, he was found, buried in a similar makeshift grave to his girlfriend, 
Peter's body was concealed under bracken and stone at Borlai Quarry, less than 250 metres from where Lorraine was discovered. Since Lorraine's body was unearthed by the mountain rescue team, a fingertip search had been undertaken. First, discovering two gunshot cartridges, then the hidden body of Peter. With two fatal gunshot wounds, one to his body, the other to his head, Superintendent Bayliss described the man they were looking for as a sadist who could quite easily strike again. The amount of stone used to obscure the graves, before camouflaging them with foliage, weighed about 150 kilograms in total. Interesting too, was the fact that the rain was interned with a great deal more care and attention than Peter. So what insight did this offer the investigation? Well, whoever was responsible was clearly physically fit. They'd have to be, to carry and arrange such a large quantity of rocks. On top of that, as more focus was given to the temporary grave of Lorraine, she was in all likelihood the aspect of the double murder that the perpetrator felt more connected to. Also, while Borlai Quarry wasn't the most remote location, it was unlikely that someone without good cause or reason or purpose would have happened upon it. In all likelihood, they would have had to have known the place pretty well, as it was away from the established footpaths and bridleways. A picture was emerging of a local man with access to a firearm. Someone who was relatively strong and healthy, maybe a miner or a labourer. Someone who either knew or was aware of Lorraine and had a possible sexual attraction to her. Whether Cromford... Matlock and the surrounding area was a particular hotspot for what was described at the time as peeping toms, I don't know. But it seemed that while the police were investigating a possible sexual motive for the murders, the press were having a field day. It is true that Superintendent Bayliss made a rather strange appeal for local peeping toms to contact the police and provide an alibi for themselves. He set a deadline of the end of the week by which, if men on the list hadn't come forward, the police would be visited to them at their homes. Bayliss explained that a local peeping Tom had approached the inquiry and provided the names of local men of a like-minded disposition. The theory being that someone had been watching Peter and Lorraine and they were responsible for their murder. Dubbed in the tabloids The Dirty Dozen, this theory gained momentum when, after the discovery of Peter's body, a witness came forward, describing how she'd seen the couple in the late afternoon of Easter Sunday, being followed by a middle-aged man in a green overcoat. With the May bank holiday approaching, police stepped up attempts to track down any further witnesses. Thinking that some tourists from out of the county might return to Derbyshire to enjoy the holiday, 20,000 leaflets were distributed by 160 officers and volunteers, with information points established in towns and villages dotted across the Peak District. In order to garner some further press attention to coincide with the operation, a further detail of the attack was made public. Both Lorraine and Peter had had their watches stolen. While Lorraine's was a very uncomplicated and simply designed gold bracelet watch, Peter's was far more distinctive. It was a red Commodore digital watch and images were circulated. 
police were keen to emphasise that they weren't suggesting robbery as a motive, but simply that its distinctive design might make it recognisable if it had been recently been offered as a gift or an item for sale. One witness did come forward to the police though, and not someone who'd seen suspicious goings on in the area, or had heard a rumour in the post office of the pub, but someone who'd seen the attack take place, and could crucially identify the individuals involved. On three separate occasions, the inquiry team at Matlock Police Station received a vital, if frustrating, call. A woman, referring to herself as Cathy, a wife and mother of two, she revealed that she'd been at Borlai Quarry on the Sunday afternoon of Lorraine and Peter's murder. Along with her family, she'd been enjoying a picnic when she saw two men approach Peter and Lorraine. The two men then began what she described as playing around with Lorraine, but when Peter tried to intervene, he was, Cathy's words again, blasted and killed. At this, naturally, her family panicked. One of her sons ran off into the forest, and the family followed. Cathy, however, was extremely reluctant to give any further information. She believed the men had seen their faces, knew their car, and she was therefore worried for the safety of her family. Despite prolonged attempts to convince Cathy that the police would provide whatever protection necessary for her and her family, Cathy failed to maintain contact with the investigation team and the only eyewitness to at least one murder slipped from their grasp. As far as the technology of the day would allow, police had so far only managed to trace the call to the neighbouring county of Nottinghamshire, and pleas were put out in the press for the understandably terrified Cathy to get back in touch. Within days, Diana Pesey, a reporter for BBC Radio Trent in Nottingham, received a call. Though based within one of the BBC's regional radio stations, her reports were broadcast across the BBC's national network, so her voice was associated around the country with the murder of Lorraine and Peter. The voice on the call was male. Refusing to identify himself, he issued a very direct threat to Cathy should she contact the police. Though passed to the police, the call wasn't reported at the time, as Diana Pesey doubted the veracity of it. A few days later, the same reporter in the same office received another call, this time from Cathy herself. Though no recording was made of the call, the version of events as told to the police of what she had seen were repeated, with great emphasis placed on her fear of reprisals, should she come forward. Peasy may have been at the early stages of her career, but she had enough experience to know that before reporting to her audience the conversation, she needs to have the conversations legitimately confirmed. She persuaded Cathy to meet face to face, something the police had been unable to do. Sensibly, putting her own safety in the pursuit of justice before some misguided, Hollywood-styled image of what a journalist should do, she contacted the police. She attended the meeting with a concealed microphone and several plain-clothed Derbyshire police detectives dotted around the park. In the end, Cathy failed to show up, in later communications saying she was there, but decided against revealing herself. In the end, 
the saga surrounding Kathy came to a frustrating end. She called the police incident room on a number of further occasions and, echoing the TV trope of 70s and 80s police procedurals, in one conversation she was kept on line for the call to be traced to an address. Unfortunately, Kathy was a complete hoax. She'd not been in Cromford or even Derbyshire on the weekend of Lorraine and Peter's murder. It seemed that she'd been suffering from a breakdown at the time, her husband having left her and her children taken into care. No criminal charges were brought, and whoever she really was, Kathy ended up admitted to hospital to receive the care that she so obviously needed. Regardless of the frustration of so much time and resources being spent tracking down Cathy, some great work had been undertaken tracing those who'd been in and around Cromford on the day of the murders. Reports and statements were accumulating at Matlock Police Station, the concern being that the answer may well already be in the police's possession, but was being overlooked. Across the border in South Yorkshire, the Ripper Inquiry was already drowning in literary tons of paperwork, obscuring any attempt to identify Peter Sutcliffe, despite his car, his description, and even his name already being hidden among the box files and card indexes. Having seen this first hand, Superintendent Bayliss was keen not to repeat the mistakes of others and took an innovative approach to utilising what intelligence was already available. On the 27th of May, 50 people who'd been in Cromford six weeks earlier, on the Easter Sunday Lorraine and Peter were murdered, were invited to return. They were shown maps of the area, an artist's impression of the man in the green coat who'd been seen carrying a gun, and sat through a video reconstruction of what the police knew for sure had happened on the day in question. They were then led to retrace their steps in order to confirm what they'd already said and to attempt to jog other memories. It was a huge commitment for the investigation. Each witness had a specific schedule of activity for the day with two officers assigned to each, one to lead the visit, the other to observe. In the weeks following the days of reconstruction, police made further appeals to trace witnesses. A group of six teenagers were asked to come to the incident room as they were seen camping in the woods near Ball Eye Quarry over the Easter weekend. Some motorcyclists were seen parked up for a long time near the entrance to the quarry around the time the murder was thought to have taken place. Obviously, The sensational headlines of the tabloids depicted them as being a group of Hell's Angels and they too were encouraged to come forward. As May gave way to June, to the outside eye, the investigation began to be scaled back. Some officers, seconded to Matlock, returned to their own divisions. The warnings were still in place for individuals to be on their guard as they walked the heathland and peaks, and an angry note in the parish magazine of Cromford chastised revellers in a local pub for rowdy behaviour, for not respecting the fact that a murderer was still at large. The incident post at Cromford Meadow was the only sign of police activity in the village. Single-staffed, it was becoming just another established feature beside the mill pond, albeit one at which locals hushed their conversations as they passed. On the morning of Tuesday the 12th of June, though, a 37-year-old farm labourer called Arthur Hall approached the single officer stationed at the post. He was accompanied by a relative, and distressed and out of breath, 
he demanded to speak to someone in charge of the investigation. The relative stood a little behind the man, close enough to make his presence felt, but far enough away for the officer to be sure it was Hall who should be the focus of his attention. It was at this point that Arthur Hall, a married father of two, first admitted to authorities that it was he who had murdered 15-year-old Lorraine Underwood and 18-year-old Peter Thompson. Before the introduction of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984, the interviewing of a suspect took place under a framework of judges' rules. These were just generalised guidelines for the officers allowed to execute interviews and recorded, and then to write a report of the interview from memory. Afterwards, officers' memories of the interview were presented in court from a handwritten report. We're all aware of the scenes in all police dramas, with the cigarette-toting, old-style copper banging his fist on the table, screaming into the face of the suspect about having him banged to rights, each syllable emphasised with a combination of projectile spittle or a pointed finger jab to the chest. Chief Inspector Burgess and Chief Inspector Downing found themselves facing an altogether different situation. The time and effort spent on tracing and tracking Cathy was still a point of much contention. Here they had a man who was offering up a confession to both murders and whose keenness to speak verged on the manic. Arthur Hall spoke of how he'd been out in the forest adjacent to Ball Eye Quarry shooting rabbits, something he did regularly from about three on Easter Sunday afternoon. Later in the afternoon, as he approached a grey limestone wall, to use his words, Peter and Lorraine were just there. The pair surprised him, and instinctively he let off a shot which struck Peter in the chest. As Peter hit the ground, for reasons Hall couldn't explain, he chased down the fleeing Lorraine, striking her on the back of the head several times with the butt of his gun. She fell to the ground. He'd killed her. Peter, whom Hall had assumed was dead, somehow survived the wound to his chest. Hall then approached the young man and, in Hall's words again, to put him out of his misery, fired at point-blank range, directly at his head, delivering a final, fatal injury. A makeshift attempt was made to hide the slain young couple before Hall ran back the mile or so home. Realising that the bodies would be easily discovered where they'd left them, later that night Hall returned to the spot. This time he made a more concerted effort to camouflage by moving the pair to separate hollows before shrouding the bodies of Lorraine and Peter with rock and bracken. Hall explained that it was a long and back-breaking process and it wasn't until dawn before he was done and retracing his steps back to his family home. As two of the most senior officers on the case, Burgess and Downing were across most of the details of the inquiry. Of anyone, they were as well placed as any to judge whether the pale and crumpled individual before them was telling the truth or whether he was simply yet another false lead sent by fate to steal the inquiry's focus and attention. As a registered gun owner, Hall had already been interviewed by officers a few weeks previously. At the time, he said he no longer owned a weapon, and as a result, he was under consideration for a follow-up conversation. When it came to the individuals witnesses had seen around and about Comfort, and ball-eye quarry at the relevant times. He bore a striking resemblance to the composite sketch already released to the public. He was under six foot tall, 
had thinning dark hair, a pale complexion and, although 37, had the look of a much older man. A feature of his statement also added weight to his confession. Although not yet released to the press, a witness had come forward to say how, early on the bank holiday Monday morning after the murders, she had seen a man walking down from the quarry site that fitted the description of the man in the green overcoat. The witness had suggested that this would have been somewhere close to about 4.30am, a time which would tally with Hall's admission that he returned in the night to better hide the bodies. Detective Burgess and Downing took a break to consider their options. They were slightly sceptical of Hall's versions of events. Though plausible against the facts of the deaths, two gunshots, several blows to the head, they were less accepting that it was simply an accident that escalated out of control. There had also been no mention of the missing watches. Were they taken as some sort of trophy or souvenir? The idea of hunting rabbits in the middle of the afternoon was something they found hard to believe. While spring is a time when rabbits are just about everywhere, early morning and late afternoons would have been more appropriate time for hunting. And why go out during a busy time for walkers and visitors in the area? Through further interviews, some of these points were addressed. Hall said he took the watches from the wrists of the murdered teenagers to make the attack look like a robbery gone wrong. His narrative as to what exactly happened altered a little, with later iterations telling him that Peter was shouting at Hall to go away, maybe even accusing him of snooping on the pair and calling Hall a pikey, local slang for peeping Tom. Adamant, however Hall was, that he wasn't watching the young couple. He'd stumbled upon them, and he'd certainly not been any sexual motive to the attack. He failed to explain why Lorraine was found in a partial state of undress, or why her temporary resting place was weighed with far more care and attention than Peter's. Hall went on to explain, though, how he'd been terrified he'd be found out, and had sawn his gun into pieces, deposing it in the River Derwent. His guilt, he said, had been so all-consuming he'd attempted an overdose, taking, he claimed, the improbably high number of 400 tablets. When the attempt failed, he confessed to his wife, who persuaded Hall to hand himself in to the police. In discussion with Detective Superintendent Bayliss, it was decided that on the balance of probability, Hall had been responsible for the murder of Lorraine and Peter and the following day he was presented to Buxton Magistrates. Charged first with the murder of Lorraine, and in the following weeks, the murder of Peter. At each appearance, he was remanded to prison to await sentencing. It seemed that confession had done little to ease Arthur Hall's soul. In the months leading up to his sentencing, he suffered self-inflicted wounds to his scalp, face, ears and around his body. With a guilty plea lodged, there was no need for a trial, and as such, a sentence hearing was held at Nottingham Crown Court on the 17th of December, 1979. In his remarks, Mr Justice Kenneth Jones described the murders of Lorraine and Peter as brutal and ruthless and the most horrible of crimes. I regard you as so dangerous, he went on, that life imprisonment should mean precisely what it says, that you should be incarcerated for the rest of your natural life. Or, said the judge, for such a time as your physical faculties are so declined that you are no longer a danger to man nor child. It was at this point that chaos broke out in the dock. Hall began to wail and attempted what was first considered an escape attempt. The two guards that were flanking him bundled him down the steps and into the bowels of the court. After a 15-minute adjournment, the proceedings resumed, with a tearful and bleeding hall, arms handcuffed behind his back. 
Their reports vary as to what actually happened. The general consensus seems to be that he attempted to scratch out his own eyes. Justice Jones repeated his scathing and condemnatory remarks and clarified the sentence that was handed down. Two life sentences with a recommendation that given the brutality of the crimes and the belief that Hall would forever be a danger to the public, that life should mean life. So I'm here in Cromford, just on the corner of Hawthorne Drive and St Mark's Way. Um, I've not gone to Gork at Lorraine's old house. Um, I've driven past it before and I'm always uncomfortable to pry too much into people's homes. I don't know if the current owners know anything about the family that lived there before, but given it's such a small community, I find it hard to believe they don't. I'm walking up the slope of St Mark's Way, and to the right is a Lichgate. A Lichgate's a gateway or an entrance to a church or a churchyard or a cemetery um, that's got a roof. This lich gate has got sandstone brick around the base and there's thick oak uprights and the beams are dark and weathered but well maintained. There's a slate roof up in the middle to a, a steep point. As I move inside the churchyard, the church is, well it's long gone, sometime in the, I think the early 20th century, there's a horseshoe of raised ground on three sides um, and you can see in the centre in the lower ground which is probably about six or seven foot drop down to the centre of the site that's obviously where the the church sat once I realise I'm beginning to make it described like it's abandoned but it's not at all it's well maintained the lawns are neatly cut and over to the right are the older heavy granite headstones from probably 100, 150 years ago but on this side up these three steps are the more recent graves and about three rows back standing out from the rest not because it's showy or the scale of it or anything but for the fact that there are so many flowers on it. There's a grave where on the 12th of May in 1979 hundreds of mourners gathered to say farewell for the final time to Lorraine and Peter. They were buried side by side and shared a polished granite headstone. There's an elegant grey inscription on it that reads See now. Loving memories of Peter Kevin Thompson died April the 15th 1979, aged 18 years, 
Also, Lorraine Helen Underwood died April 15th, 1979, age 15. Although the gravestone itself is neat and narrow, the pitch is twice as wide as any other. It's got a neat grey concrete trim around the edge and tiny gravel stones set inside it. And like I said, there are flowers here. And in front of the upright gravestone, there's two grey plaques. One again with flowers around it and a, an engraved red rose at the bottom says in loving memory of Margaret Underwood, Lorraine's mum, who died in March 2007. Dearly loved mum and mama, our hearts and memories forever. Beneath that, and it's quite touching really, it says on a second stone, in loving memory, of a dearly beloved husband and father, Maurice John Thompson. He was buried here in 1986. That's Peter's father. So just as the two weren't buried alone, there's memorials to their mum and the other one's dad there with them. On the, and I can't think of a better way to close really, beneath the gravestone, at the bottom, there are some, four short lines of a poem that have been written beneath the name of Peter and Lauren. And it reads, two hearts entwined stop beating, two sweethearts laid to rest. God's garden must be beautiful, for he only takes the best. <laughs>